Tonight's scripture reading is Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus and his disciples had been walking for many days. The peaceful hills of Galilee were now long behind them and now glistening in the desert sunlight a few hundred yards across the Kidron Valley was the city of David, the glory of the Jews. The road was thronged with pilgrims from across the empire streaming in for Passover lambs, preparing for sacrifice, bleated everywhere. Some pilgrims sang psalms as they approached. All along the way, stern Roman soldiers guarded the procession. Dead men hung on crosses to remind all visitors what happened when you crossed the Roman Empire. Jesus drew near to Jerusalem. He drew near to his destiny. He drew near to his greatest challenge. He drew near to his betrayal. He drew near to his abandonment. He drew near to his triumph. He drew near to his victory. And when I was reading this this week, I thought, you know, there is a way, a small way, that we all draw near to Jerusalem at times. There is a way in which we approach our ultimate destiny, we approach our greatest challenge, we approach our end, we approach the moment for which we have been created. Notice that Matthew does not write, now when Jesus drew near, he says when they drew near. Even the Son of Man needs his closest friends when he faces his greatest challenge. And the Greek verb for draw near is the same verb Matthew uses earlier when he talks about the kingdom of God drawing near. Now as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, the kingdom of God is drawing near. But the king of the kingdom of God is coming into Jerusalem in a different way than other kings have. 300 years earlier, 
Alexander the Great rode into Jerusalem on a massive white war horse. Alexander was a a great man himself, very tall, and historians say that he was as high as 13 feet off the ground when he came into the city. Thousands of soldiers surrounded him. They'd torn through northern Iran, come all the way down through Palestine. Either you surrendered or you were destroyed. They had just totally devastated Gaza, and he marched into Jerusalem on a great white war horse. And then something really interesting happened, at least according to the Roman historian Josephus. The, the, the rabbis came out, and the rabbis paid a lot of attention to prophecy. And there was this prophecy in Daniel 8, chapter 5, that said that out of the West, a great leader would rise and conquer the world, and then at the end, be, his kingdom would be shattered and split apart. It was this goat with one horn. And Josephus says that they took him into the temple and showed him that ancient prophecy. And the great leader read it and was humbled and treated Israel more gently as a result. Jesus knew that people read prophecies. And so in this uh, entry into Jerusalem, he, he makes a point of fulfilling several of them. He starts his journey from the Mount of Olives, where Zechariah had said the Messiah would begin his ascent. So like Alexander, he comes in the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Unlike Alexander, he rides in on a donkey. Now, imagine this scene, and and I know when we read these stories, if you've been around the church for a while, we can almost romanticize them. But, but let's imagine what this would have been like. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie him and bring him to me. If anybody says anything, you just say the Lord needs him. We read that and we think, yeah, that's just a sweet story. Now think about that for a moment. <laughs> you are a fisherman from Galilee up in the north. You, you, you speak a country dialect. You're in the big city. Thousands of people speaking other languages are all around you. You're terrified. The Lord tells you to go into this village, Bethphage, which is just a couple of dozen yards in front of you. And essentially, if he were saying it today, he would say, go hotwire a civic and bring it back to me. And if the owner says, what's up? You just say, God wants it. (laughs) That's what he asked them to do. And the Romans had very severe penalties for theft. And I looked some of them up today. And if you weren't a Roman citizen, you could actually be crucified yourself for stealing something as small as a donkey. You could be crucified, you could be flogged, and at the very least, you would pay it back fourfold. So this isn't a small thing that Jesus is asking the disciples to do. It makes for a cute Palm Sunday story. But it's actually pretty risky. And if, you're, if, if you remember from other years of studying the Gospels, the, the, the disciples don't really still understand what is happening. And so let me ask you this. Has God ever said, go, and it makes no sense to you? It, inquire, it entails a risk. And you have no idea how it's going to turn out. Why do they say yes? 
It's because they know him, they trust him, they don't understand him fully, but they understand that there's a larger story that they're a part of, so they go. So, has the Lord said to, to you, go, make that call, look into that graduate program, reconnect with your mother, Go see the doctor. Tell someone about your cancer. As the Lord said to you, go. But you're not because you can't figure out how it's all going to work out. Trust the larger story. Now, the other side is this. Maybe he said, go, and you said, all right, I'm going, and you went. And now you're wondering, why, why, why did I do that? I mean, think of how the disciples must have felt on, on Wednesday or Friday. I risked my neck so that you could be crucified? I think that might even be a harder place to be. God, you thought led you to do this, you thought you were obeying, you went where you thought he wanted you to go, you broke up with the person you thought you were supposed to break up with, you did share about your cancer with the person you thought you were supposed to share about it with, and it didn't really go the way you thought it was going to go. Now you're wondering, what was that? Well, again, I think we have to trust that there's a larger story. Not be discouraged. Just go off the last thing that you knew. I also think it's interesting to think about the guy that owned the Civic. Um, what, would it, what would it have been like for two guys you don't know to come in, and, and again, for a small villager of this point in history to have a donkey and a colt would have been like half your net worth all right you can have it is someone asking something from you that doesn't make a whole lot of sense but you just have a sense that the Lord wants it that's hard Will you say yes? Well, like the disciples on Palm Sunday, we trust a bigger story and keep going. Matthew tells us that Jesus called for the donkey to fulfill another prophecy from Zechariah. The Messiah will come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now here's the full prophecy here. We saw the first part, rejoice greatly, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then this is the way you understand what he was talking about. 
this Messiah, what is he going to do? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What's he coming to do? He's coming to bring peace. He's coming to end violence. He's coming to bring in the shalom of God, the reign of God, the peaceable kingdom into all the earth. Now, let's put that in the context of what was going on at the time. Jerusalem was home to two demonic systems that were crushing the people, a religious system and a political system. And so Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to overturn those two systems. In fact, he's really riding into Jerusalem to wage war against a demonic political system and a demonic religious system. And how does he do it? How does he fight? He rides in on a donkey. He comes in in humility and meekness and gentleness and in peace. God may be calling you to confront a broken demonic system that robs people of their dignity and snuffs out their joy. It might be the broken system of your own family. That might actually be the hardest spiritual warfare you can fight is to confront the sickness in your own family. It might be the broken culture in your workplace. It might be the broken system of your children's school or any broken demonic system that keeps people from being all God intended them to be. How do you confront a system like that? What do you do when you come up against some of the things we prayed about last night in the lament service? How do you approach it? There's not a manual, but you approach it on a donkey. That's Christ's way. You approach it with humility and meekness, gentleness, Peace. There's this tradition in the Russian Orthodox Church called the Holy Fool. And the Holy Fool uh, is thought to be crazy. But the Holy Fool is actually the wisest person in the room. A Holy Fool decides that he doesn't play by the rules of the society and he kind of almost makes fun of those rules and turns them on on their head and he and he kind of lives on the margins but everybody knows who he is he and they think this is a crazy man but he actually is the wisest person in the room and he upends the way everybody thinks about things and in his foolishness he preaches to the powers Paul said he was a fool for Christ. Paul talked about the foolishness of the gospel. And one of the things Jesus is doing when he gets on a donkey to confront the Roman eagle, when he rides an ass into the greatest military power in the world, is he's acting that way, this prophetic symbol that is just absurd. It's just ridiculous. It's foolish. But it makes its point. St. Simeon is the patron saint of holy fools during the 6th century when religion in his area had gotten dry and business-like. He went out of the desert, became a monk. Years later, came back in dragging a dead dog behind him, just wandered around through the streets, sat in the mass and threw peanuts 
at the priests and generally uh, made jokes about them. And he ate sausage publicly on Good Friday and then in quiet served the poor. And he created a kind of renewal among the people. Could God be calling you to be a holy fool? Could he call you to to be doing something that just seems almost crazy? It just makes no sense. As a donkey would make no sense in confronting the Roman Empire, but it was such a powerful symbol that it made all the sense in the world. Remember, the ways of God are strange. The cross is foolishness. Might Jesus call you to do something that looks a little crazy to make a prophetic point? Once when I was in a graduate program, I was studying at another university and I had a a meeting with an Old Testament professor. And in the corner of his office was a broken staff. And at the end of the interview, I, I said, sir, what's that broken staff? And he said, 80 years ago, our denomination split. We've been in sin ever since. I carry that staff every day across campus to testify to the sin of our division. He was a tenured professor with a Ph.D. from Vanderbilt, and he was a holy fool. Well, while the Roman soldiers may have thought that Jesus was crazy, the pilgrims thought they knew what was meant by the donkey, or at least... They felt they did. And this man comes in fulfilling the prophecies. They take their cues. They begin to worship him. They begin to sing Psalm 118, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us, God. It's a kind of an ancient ticker tape parade, and they are getting ready for the revolution. And they are ready for the zealots to rise up, the the hidden subversive forces to gather an army and to go in and finally take Rome out. And so they worship him. Our text says that the whole city is stirred up as, as a result. But as we will find out, the applause does not last very long, and by Friday they turn against him. And, you know, it's easy to kind of shake our heads and say, how could they do that? I would never do something like that. But I, I wonder if we don't commit a similar sin. Here's how I think it might work. We have an image in our head of what Jesus is supposed to do in our life. We have, we have a picture in our mind of what God is supposed to do and be like to and for us and the way our life with him should play out. We've got that all figured out. When we, when we start to follow him, we kind of know how it's going to go, and that's kind of why we sign on, and then it doesn't happen. Jesus behaves badly. He's confusing And he doesn't answer our prayers. He doesn't give us what we ask for. He 
subverts things and flips them upside down. He puts us in maddening, dangerous situations. Sometimes he thinks a million miles away. We get into our life and sometimes we wonder what happened. You said I'd be here. Now I'm here. And we may not say crucify him. But we may say enough. Look. Everybody says you're good. You're not doing what I thought you should do. I'm not worshiping anymore. No more praise from me. It's not as dramatic as crucifying. But you can crucify him in a simple way like just backing away, shutting it down, winding it off. I think actually that's how many of us lose our faith. I don't think it's usually a dramatic, classic crash and burn. I think it's death by a thousand little cuts. A little hurt from the church. A little cut from a pastor. A little disappointment in a Christian friend. A long Fervent prayer left unanswered. A loved one that dies far too early. Gradually those disappointments accumulate. Gradually we begin to wonder whether Jesus is who he says he is. And slowly we stop worshiping. Nobody really notices. After all, you know, nobody takes attendance in church anymore. We all can, you know, nobody, it's too legalistic. We don't look at that kind of stuff. But over time, something dies. And I wonder if, to him, that's just like a pilgrim crying, crucified. Let's pray.